Good morning. I hope you're having a beautiful day so far. Um, I'll be reading the book of Acts chapter 15. I'll be reading through verses 1 to 11 and verses 22 to 35. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching their brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sends them on their way, and as they travel through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done for them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice amongst you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on their necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you and our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessings of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Today's story is about how the early Christians almost got religion and thankfully didn't. Because real Christianity, and remember, when we began 20 weeks ago looking at this, 
we saw a template, a model for how cultures can be transformed throughout history. Great awakenings occur when Christians recover the essence, the original essence of true Christianity. Real Christianity is not a religion any more than antimatter is matter. Religion is man reaching for God. Christianity is God reaching for man. Religion sets up a set of beliefs, codes, and standards of conduct by which you are measured worthy or unworthy. Christ actually came to set us free from religion. One of the primary groups that we've seen over and over again plays a part here again, and they're a classic example, and those are the Pharisees. A sect within Judaism, the most conservative sect, the most legalistic, they had taken the law of Moses, the Torah, and written an extensive commentary on it known as the Talmud. Then they wrote a commentary on the commentary, the Mishnah, a list of hundreds of rules that became a legalism that was just ridiculous. Here's some of the laws. For instance, One of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, God had a very relational purpose for that. In fact, the whole law is actually about relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with man. If you think about the Decalogue that way, you'll see it's not a list of do's and don'ts by which we're to be measured. It's about being in proper relationship with God and with people. It's why Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandments are, said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. The whole law is summarized by this. But the Pharisees had lost that relational factor and turned it into a measurement. You see, religion boils down to mathematics. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, and you're righteous. You're worthy of God. For example, on the Sabbath, you couldn't walk through a field Because if your sandal brushed against a kernel of wheat and it fell to the ground, you were harvesting on the Sabbath. I'm not making this up. On the Sabbath, you couldn't spit on the ground because it would turn into mud, and mud was mortar. So you're working on the Sabbath. This is how the Pharisees lived. And then, of course, because it was untenable to live that way, they found ways of breaking rules. For instance, you could only travel so far away from your house on Sabbath, according to the mission, so they would take a rope just before Sabbath, and they would leave one end of it at their house, and they'd take it to whatever house they intended to visit, and that house could be legally considered part of your abode. So you could go there on Sabbath. This is a classic example of what religion does. It creates an unrealistic, legalistic standard by which we measure one another and find each other worthy or lacking. And the problem is all religion ultimately shows us is that none of us measure up. Even the Old Testament law, Paul says, by the law no one is proven just. In fact, by the law we become mindful of our moral brokenness, what the Bible refers to as sin. Jesus came to restore the relationship that all religions prove to us is broken, our relationship with God. And that's why Christianity isn't a religion. As a race, we have this tendency to turn everything into religion, religious fervor. 
shows up not just in the spiritual but in the secular. I'll give you some examples. I just went around the internet early this morning and just want to show you images of how we buy and we commit fully to our religion of choice. <laughs> there are other forms of religion of the secular type. Yeah. One of the most religious events I've ever experienced apart from church was at a Red Sox game. I mean, think about it. There's a call to worship, the national anthem. There's the invocation, the first ceremonial pitch. There's the seventh inning stretch, doxology, God bless America, right? Then the Red Sox, we have our own little special closer that we do towards the end. So good, so good, so good. An affirmation of the goodness of life, right? Liturgical dance, the wave. We migrate towards religious experience. Why? Because all of us want community and we all want affirmation. We need to fit in someplace. Here's a group. If I do this, if I dress this way, if I follow these, I'm going to fit. I belong here. But all of that falls short because we were meant to be in community ultimately with God. We were meant to find our greatest source of worth and affirmation in Him. And sin cuts us short of that. Religion is a vain human attempt to substitute for that relationship. Only Christ restores that relationship. We could spend hours today just talking about how religion has invaded Christianity, couldn't we? And all of us have our pet story probably about when bad Christians happen to good people. We all know that that tends to happen. It's a constant battle. And how we respond determines whether we stay true to the real faith or whether we fall into selling some legalistic righteousness all of our own. Even though we profess salvation by faith and grace, we really want you to fit in and do it our way, see? How do we stay true to the faith? That's really the question. And what we see here is that brought to the extreme because what was decided here mattered for all of us. If things didn't go correctly at this gathering, you and I today would not be here worshiping Jesus. If the Judaizers, as we're going to come to know them in the weeks ahead, if the Judaizers succeeded at bringing religion to Christianity, Christianity would have become simply one of the minor sects of Judaism and been swallowed up. The gospel would have been destroyed, and God's plan to redeem humanity would have ended before it even got going. I'm so glad the early Christians did not get religion. And that's the movement I want to be a part of and we want to be a part of. So as we break down this passage today, we're going to break it up into four things. We're going to look at the controversy itself. We're going to look at the conclave, the gathering. We're going to look at the conclusion that was made, and then finally we're going to look at the communique or the communication. So let's uh, go to Acts chapter 15, and let's look first at the nature of 
the controversy. Remember last week where we ended up. We had the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas sent out from this vibrant community of Gentile and Hellenistic Jews who converted the faith, and together God moves in them to call out Barnabas and Saul, who becomes Paul on this trip. He really emerges. They go up into Galatia, and they come back, and they affirm all that God's done, and then they continue to teach. So in the midst of all this joy, all of a sudden we have these people coming from Jerusalem. And they begin teaching an erroneous, a great heresy in uh, verse one. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Let's be clear about what they were saying. Most of those who have come to faith in Jerusalem who are largely Palestinian Jews, and some of them actually Pharisees who have now come to Christ. To them, Jesus is their Messiah. Coming to faith in him is the culmination of their faith. But they're still committed to all of that regulation. And then they have heard, and they're very troubled by the fact that there are Gentiles that are supposedly coming to Jesus without first coming through Judaism. You see, up until what happened at Antioch, those Gentiles that come to faith in Christ were described as God-fearers. They were proselytes of the Jewish faith. So that was okay. But once people began just shortcutting to Jesus, without coming under Judaism, without obeying its laws, that was troubling for them. In fact, they couldn't imagine how it would happen. And so a group emerges known as the Judaizers who begin believing that it's an error to tell a Gentile they can come to Christ without becoming a Jew. And they believe it so firmly that they finally go up to Antioch and begin teaching this. And it says that this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate. This had a huge impact. How significant was the disruption that occurred here? Turn with me to the book of Galatians very quickly. This is one of Paul's angrier letters. The churches in Galatia that he has reached for Christ and who experienced freedom in Christ have begun to buy into. The Judaizer cult continues its war in spite of what's decided here. They continue to go and preach this false gospel, what Paul would call another gospel, which in fact is no gospel. That's what he calls it. But he tells the story of this event. Chapter two, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the Judaizers. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, listen, even Barnabas was led astray. How bad was this? It even confused the godly spiritual teachers and leaders in Antioch. Remember Peter, the white sheet, going to Cornelius' house, coming back and saying, even the Gentiles have come to faith. So he went to visit Antioch and was not living like a Jew. What that means is Peter had his first taste of a ham sandwich. (laughs) Bacon and eggs for breakfast every morning. Then the Judaizers come And the intimidation of what they're saying, Peter backs away. So for a time, even though God had revealed the truth to him 
and to Barnabas, they both for a time were intimidated. They didn't necessarily buy into the doctrine, but they were so intimidated by it they weren't willing to stand up to it. That's the times we need to stand the strongest. And only Paul was willing to do that. Back to Acts 15. They go back to Jerusalem. And we have this conclave. There are actually three different gatherings. The first one is in verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. This was their homecoming. They came back and reported all that God had done. I can imagine it was a very warm uh, thing for most of them. But it was in that gathering, verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, some think this is, again, the Judaizers. Others think, because the Judaizers were not believing a true gospel, that when Luke says they were believers who were Pharisees, that they were espousing the law not as a requirement for salvation, which is what the Judaizers said back in Antioch, Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. What they are saying is that the believers now have to obey the law. Now, to me, that is the most common form of legalistic religion that finds its way into the church today. You'll go to lots of places where people talk about salvation through faith and grace, and then once people get in the door, they throw them the book. And it's not the Bible. <laughs> it's the book of all the things we don't do. You know, now that you're in, measure up. And that's arguably what this group is about. It's all rooted in the same confusion that somehow Judaism itself, the standards, the religious practices, were an essential part to achieving whatever it was that Christ came to achieve. That led them into the true conclave. And that picks up at verse 6. The apostles and the elders met alone. And it says there was much discussion. You know how those discussions go. There's usually two types of people in a discussion. There's those that have something to say and those that have to say something. We don't know how long this goes on, but eventually four people speak. Peter speaks. Barnabas and Saul speak, and then James, the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church. What a group. This is like the hall of fame of the book of Acts. Peter, who was the one that God used to break through so that they all understood that the gospel was coming to the Gentiles, that powerful opportunity that was his. Barnabas, Barnabas, faithful, steady, trustworthy man of great reputation, fair and balanced Barnabas. Paul, who had been Saul, the persecutor of the church, a great demonstration of God's grace, himself, and now apostle to the Gentiles. And then finally, James speaking as the elder. Peter speaks to the conclave, and then Barnabas and Saul and James speak to the whole assembly, and that's the third gathering. What we can learn from this is four ways that we can stay true to the faith. The first thing that they do is consider honestly and open what God is actually doing. Peter tells his story. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe 
God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Peter's reminding them of that pivotal revelation to him personally, witnessing the Holy Spirit coming to Cornelius and his family in the same demonstration of gifts that were, that were shown back at Pentecost. So he's saying this is what God has done. Later on, Paul and Barnabas, the whole assembly listens to them. It says as they are telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And then finally, James concludes looking at what God has done by saying this. Brothers, listen to me. Verse 14. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. You can circle that because that's the conclusion about what God has done. Very often, it's our presuppositions that keep us from seeing what God's doing. So we need to be willing to understand that no matter how far we've grown, no matter how much we've experienced grace, we all have blind spots. There's things I know that I know. There's things I know I don't know. But there's also plenty that I don't know that I don't know. That's why we call ourselves the Journey Community Church, by the way, because we're all still growing. I'm still growing. God has more things to reveal to me. And so as part of staying on course with God, it's a willingness to openly look and consider what God is actually doing. But you can't just accept the fact that the miraculous occurs and say that's proof. That's only a piece of it. Because Satan always duplicates the miraculous. That's what we've learned back in Moses' day all the way into the book of Acts. So there's more that they do. The second thing they do is that they confess, and we need to confess, how we are working against what God is doing. Here's how Peter put it. Verse 9 and following. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? They look at how they, even perhaps well-intended, are actually getting in the way of what God wants to do because we're so stuck in our traditions, our assumptions, the things that we have been doing as part of our religiosity in following Christ, and we have confused the activities and the traditions as part of what lets God be God. And so if you're not doing it our way, if you're not worshiping the same way we worship, if you're not reaching out the same way we reach out, if you don't dress the same way we dress, if you're not doing ministry, if you're not preaching the way I like preaching to happen, you you think God can't move because you've only experienced him move through a certain set of ideas. And at some point, those ideas will actually pit you against what God is doing. And so as part of staying on the course, we need to not only consider what God's doing, we need to really look and say, God, what is it I'm not seeing? What is it that I'm doing that maybe puts me as an obstacle to what you want to do? And we need to root that out. And sometimes that's as individuals. Sometimes that's as a whole community of faith. And that's what Peter does. He challenges the community. The third part of staying true to the faith is to clarify the gospel. 
And Peter does that for us by saying this in verse 11. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Ultimately, the true path to staying true to God is to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to look at how what people are proposing either furthers it or adds to it or takes away from it. There's two essential types of heresy around the gospel. Heresy that takes away the need for forgiveness through Christ. We call that theological liberalism, not political liberalism. That's a whole different thing. We don't really need the cross. We're all good enough. That takes away from the gospel. Then there are those that add to the gospel. It's the gospel plus baptism. It's the gospel plus confession and Hail Marys and Our Fathers. It's the gospel plus. Both of those move us away from the clarity of the gospel. And that's why Peter says, at some point you just have to say, no. No, we believe it is by grace alone, through faith, that we are saved. Now let me just again quickly address what I think is one of the most effective arguments against Christianity in our modern culture. You have heard this over and over again. It came up again this week in a book someone that I know was reading. People have successfully separated Orthodox Christianity as we try our best to practice it from Jesus by suggesting that Paul changed all the rules that the Palestinian Jews had a more pure idea of Jesus, and Paul took it and shanghaied it and took it away from Judaism, and so we're actually followers of Paul, not Jesus. Now, let's settle this once and for all. Is there any sense <laughs> that you get going through this biography of the early church that Paul taught anything but the gospel that Peter taught or that the early church espoused to. Make no mistake, Paul brought the original message of the cross as Peter taught it, as Stephen taught it, and as Jesus intended it to be brought to the whole world. Let's just settle that now and forever. Don't let people say that to you. You know the story. That's just a little pet peeve of mine because I think it's out there right now and it's worth worth talking about. They clarify the gospel. And then a fourth thing, they confirm in the scripture. James goes back to the prophet Amos. He shows how even the prophets saw that God would reach out and draw from himself a people distinctly from the Gentiles. I, I suggest that while this is a story and we cannot take doctrine out of storyline, this is certainly a pattern that we can learn from to stay true to the faith. We need to look at what God's doing. We need to be open to God revealing what in us are assumptions and our roadblocks and our bigotries and our, our prejudices that may keep us from going where God's going. We need to confess them. We need to always come back to the gospel. The centrality of the gospel is a community. We are at first, if we are nothing, a gospel community. And then we always guide our decisions based on the confirmation of Scripture. Praise God they followed that path, and the result, as you know, was this uh, conclusion. 
It is my judgment, James says, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's a bit of an understatement, don't you think? And so they choose to write a letter. And the communique is kind of interesting. We won't take a lot of time to talk about it, but they say to them, we're sorry that some people came from among us and caused you all this difficulty. And probably, to me, the biggest thing is that they say you are part of the body of Christ. They affirm that. And then they make a request that they abstain from food offered to idols and from blood. The earliest manuscripts do not have in them this idea of animals strangled. Not in the earliest manuscripts. And that's why many people think when he's talking about blood, he's actually talking about murder, bloodshed. And then the third is sexual immorality. Now, someday we'll come back and look at that a little bit more. But note they're saying, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit as we were praying for us to make this request of you. So they are not putting a new set of legalistic laws on them. Why would they do that? What they're trying to do is to make sure that everyone is sensitive to a different set of convictions. This is the first place in the Bible where spiritual leaders ask a group of people to follow a certain set of practices, some of which were clearly because they're wrong for us at all times. Sexual immorality is wrong at all times, and it was rampant in the Greek culture because of the way they worshiped. So that's an exhortation to purity, right? Meat offered idols and blood are both considerations to ask them to be sensitive to the fact, and as they say, we're gonna ask them to do this because everywhere, even out where those churches are, there are God-fearing Jews even out there, and we wanna be sensitive to them. So they are being asked to do this in order to not offend what Scripture calls weaker brothers. There's a time for us to be sensitive to the concerns and cares of others. But there's also a time to stand up and say, no, when you compromise the gospel, we're going to stand against that. So this is a very interesting point, and I'm only going to suggest that, in my opinion, this was the Jerusalem church trying to make peace by suggesting some things, in particular related to meat. It was very hard to buy meat anywhere in the Roman world that hadn't been sacrificed. In Galatia, that was true. And Paul would address this later and say, all things are lawful, but not all things are appropriate. Not all things edify the body. So they're really imposing on the church at Antioch a couple of things out of uh, sensitivity. That's not the real point of the story. The end result is what matters most. They got the main point. The main point was, you're our brothers. You have been saved by faith through grace in Christ. God has made for himself a people, and you stand right with him. No circumcision. A whole bunch of Gentile men breathed a big sigh of relief when they found that out. They are free. And so verse 30, the men were sent off, went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together, delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. Don't lose that. That's the primary thing. 
We're saved by grace in Christ. Listen, listen. We want to transform the city. We want to be a part of a movement that moves our society back to God. We have to stay true to the faith. We have to capture, reaffirm, be relentless about laying hold of the true essence of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thanks for the joy of seeing this, uh, this story and seeing how you worked through godly men and women willing to grow, willing to look at what you were doing, committed, relentless to the gospel and uh, knowledgeable of Scripture and willing to step forward with you. I'm thinking of what Henry Blackaby has said years ago. Find out where God's moving and get there. Father, that's what we want to be as your people, for your glory and for the good of this city. And so we commit ourselves to that today. In Jesus' name, amen.